Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The first epistle of St. Peter, the first chapter, verses 3 through 5. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Am I coming through this thing? Am I coming in the house? Praise God. Praise God. Well, I would draw your attention this morning to our gospel passage. If you have a copy of God's Word, in chapter 20 of the gospel according to St. John beginning with verse 19. Before we zoom in on that piece, though, we need to back up and get some context and look at our dear sister, St. Mary Magdalene. It was Mary Magdalene, often known as the Apostle to the Apostles, who we see in John 20, is the first to proclaim our Lord's resurrection. Her exact words, according to St. John, were, I have seen the Lord. She evangelized the apostles, and she received a commission from the Lord himself to do so, as we read in verse 17, where our Lord says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, I will not presume to speak for St. Mary, but as I hear these words and try to place myself in the situation, they strike me as a bit strange. I'll try to explain. Because here, the anointed one, God's chosen, has returned fully alive from Rome's torments, and his announcement is not, as we might expect, prepare my throne. Prepare the chariots. Now we pay out our enemies. Instead, what does he do? He gently cautions Mary to keep a loose grip on his resurrected presence, knowing that he still had to ascend to the Father, from where, as St. Peter says, an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance is kept for us. Now, we might still wonder why the Lord insisted on a temporary Eastertide, only 40 days. As Peter asked on the Mount of Transfiguration, why not make a dwelling here and just live in the shine of his glory? Well, all his incarnate life, our Lord was constantly dodging earthly crowns of gold that perish though tested by fire. As in John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, you'll remember our Lord perceives they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. So he withdraws to the mountain in solitude. Or when Pontius Pilate in John 19 seemed intent on forcing Jesus to define himself within the political terms of the world, saying, oh, so you are a king. Our Lord gives an ambiguous reply. You say that I'm a king. Almost like Pilate's understanding of kingship does not hold any weight by heaven's standards. 
Our Lord calmly rejects Pilate's earthly terms and marches up another mountain by himself. So here with Mary Magdalene, when we would love nothing more than to cling to the resurrected Christ and co-opt the divine plan, make it work according to our terms and lean on our own understanding, the Lord Jesus again evades the earthly crown that he might make the heavenly ascent we celebrate 40 days after Easter. When, as we read in Ephesians 4, he ascended on high, led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. The greatest gift being, of course, the Spirit of God, who was sent 10 days after that ascension on Pentecost. But though Mary is instructed not to cling to the resurrected Lord, she's also entrusted with a hint of the living hope now secured for the saints. Did you catch it? Our Lord says, go to my brothers. Go to my brothers. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Feels like we've been brought into something. Here we have the first hint that the spear that pierced his side so that we might enter in, be grafted in, that we might be given the right to become, if you can believe it, the children of God, the brothers and sisters of the Son of God, part of the royal family. For in this age of our Lord's tarrying, when the people of God are again given to holy waiting, as St. Peter tells us in our epistle, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As St. Paul tells us in Romans 8.24, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In this age, ours is a living hope in what we don't see because of what the apostles did see. And though we have not seen him, we love him. We believe in him. We rejoice in him. In John 20, verse 19, it was the evening of that Resurrection Sunday. Mary Magdalene has already made the first gospel proclamation, um, but it didn't quite take root. Even for those on the ground, the resurrection was not understood all at once. If you look back in verse 9 of chapter 20, we read, As yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So, in verse 19, while death itself was already six feet under, so to speak, because of the victory of Christ, the disciples are still playing by the old rules of lifelong slavery from the fear of death. The news had not yet reached them. It reminds me of the origins of that magnificent national holiday, Juneteenth. A day to be celebrated by all who cherish freedom. Juneteenth is generally associated with the abolition of slavery in this country. A cause championed by many Christians, I will remind us, in particular many Anglican Christians. But Juneteenth actually remembers June 19th. 1865, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. It remembers when Union soldiers were first able to actually enforce the law in Texas that had already been enacted. So for two years, human beings, brothers and sisters in Christ, whose freedom had already been accomplished 
remained subject to the practical effects of slavery until the justice that had already been enacted was finally enforced and brought into effect. The disciples huddled together behind locked doors, relying on physical barriers to protect them from the old powers, much like how we still are wrestling with the powers of sin and death in our flesh, though Christ has already won the victory. There's often this disconnect between what Christ has already accomplished in our lived experience. As the Holy Spirit says through St. Paul in Romans 6, how can we who died to sin still live in it? It's a fair question. Instead, we should consider ourselves to be what we are, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Peter touches on this in our epistle reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, where he says, In this, that is our salvation, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the salvation is so firmly won that it's something that can be rejoiced in, and yet we cannot escape the grief that still comes with various trials. What's going on? Well, Peter explains... You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Beloved, the trials are given for the purification of our faith to prepare us for judgment. Later in verse 9, Peter tells his readers that they are obtaining the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls. And so like the disciples, we find we are often tempted to play by the old rules, to hide behind locked doors, to be scared to death, scared of death. And all the while, everything has been accomplished. Our privilege is to work out the salvation that he won for us. For as we read in Hebrews 10, 14, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Salvation is the ark constructed from the wood of the cross. We serve him within this ark. We send out ravens and doves as we wait. For we have been born into a living hope. Salvation behind and before, which makes sense since he is the beginning and the end, as he told John at, ironically, both the beginning and end of Revelation. United to Christ, we share in his death that we might also share in his life. Media vita in morte sumus. In the midst of life, we are in death. We have a living hope in what we don't see because of what the apostles did see. And though we do not now see him, we love him. We believe in him. We rejoice in him. So in the midst of the resurrection, the apostles are still trembling before death, but our Lord proceeds to show them the breadth of his victory and just sails above all of it. In verse 19 of John 20, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, not, of course, all Jews, but the religious leaders, Jesus came and stood among them like the walls weren't even there. The doors were locked, but the word of God is not bound. 
As someone, I can't recall who, once said something like, it's not that Christ was some ghostly presence who passed through the solid walls. Rather, he had become so real, almost super real, that the walls themselves became ghostly in comparison to him. As C.S. Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce, reality is harsh to the feet of shadows. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, But then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. With Christ, the perfect comes, and having arrived, Christ has something to announce. Since Mary Magdalene's testimony only puzzled them, the Lord comes to evangelize them himself. He does it using the old familiar Hebrew greeting, Shalom Aleichem, peace be with you using something as mundane as an everyday greeting to deliver the gospel. As a nerd of etymology, I can't help but mention this is also true in the Romance languages for the words for goodbye. So the English word goodbye is a smushed up, that's the technical term, of God be with you. Goodbye, God be with you. And so also in Spanish, adios is a commendation to God. Adios, to God. And also in French, adieu is again to God. So though in many ways we live in a supposed post-Christian wasteland, if you pay close attention, the truth of the gospel is sprinkled throughout the world. Heaven and earth is full of his glory. Peace be with you is our Lord's transfigured greeting. And with the greeting, did you notice, he then shows the cost of that peace by showing them his hands and his side. He says, peace be with you, and then he shows them his hands and his side. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace by his wounds. Yes, we are healed. And he wears the scars of those wounds like the trophies of a great battle, like the trappings of a great warrior. Our Lord Jesus, both the founder and perfecter of our faith, as we read in Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame. And he proudly displays the evidence of his passion still in his resurrected body. In this way, we see the cross bleeds over into the resurrection such that the two are linked. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. Paul says in Romans 6, 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And in Philippians three ten that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. My family moved around a fair amount growing up. Just enough that I've always felt like a weirdo wherever I go. I remember being a senior in high school when my parents moved from West Alabama to their current home, LaGrange, Georgia. I was in the car with my mom. We were driving through LaGrange, and my mom made this offhand comment that I'll never forget. It's funny, the things you remember. We were talking about the move and how much we've moved together throughout our lives. And then she said, I want my next move to be up. I want my next move to be up. If you have the privilege of knowing my mother, you know she is a deeply devout, deeply zealous disciple of Jesus Christ. And so I heard this as the testimony of one in love with Christ. That wherever we are, we are always prepared for our next move to be up. 
For to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. In this hope, we were saved. The Father has caused us to be born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, in the midst of life, we are in death, but also in the midst of death, we are in life. So the Lord greets them and shows them his scars, but receiving no reply, he repeats himself. Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So the costly peace comes with a commission. For the apostles, this commission was for them to be sent out as his representatives in laying the foundation of the household of God, the church, with the prophets. They are the rock upon which his church was built, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. But did you notice the Lord does not give a bare command without the means to accomplish it? As St. Augustine prayed to the Lord in his confessions, all my hope is found solely in your exceeding great mercy. Give what you command and command what you will. And so just as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters when that chaos was brought into order, and as God, did you notice, sent a wind to blow over the waters of the flood to restore his creation anew, so also the Spirit that proceeds from the Father is breathed onto the apostles through Christ, and he speaks the phrase repeated at every priestly ordination. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, why did he give them this authority? Well, he told us just a moment ago, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The word apostle literally has to do with one who is sent, but it also connotes authority as a representative. So the apostles were set apart as the royal ambassadors, the heralds, the representatives of the king. And as it happens, one of the first they had caused to evangelize was one of their own number. St. Thomas. Thomas, who, like Peter, so passionately proclaimed his willingness to die with Christ in John eleven sixteen. if you remember, Jesus is going to Judea and Thomas stands up and says, let's die with him. I like Thomas. So also, again, like Peter, he suffered one of the hardest falls when everything went south on Good Friday. You can almost hear the bitterness in his voice. Thomas insists on something that the readers of John's gospel, both then and now, likely did not have access to, which was a direct observation of the resurrected Lord. Thomas says, until I see the marks, until I, you know what, until I touch the marks, until I put my hand into his side, his gaping side, I'll never believe. I have to mention that for those who like to claim Christianity only bears witness to some kind of mystical, spiritual, moralistic resurrection, this is an inconvenient passage. Because it certainly sounds to me, now I'm just a country bumpkin from Marengo County, but it sounds to me that Thomas is insisting on a first-hand encounter with a physical body of a guy that was dead and is now alive. Thomas doesn't want a mystical experience of the divine through self-sacrificial moralism to become immortal in the minds and hearts of Christians through his imitation of Christ. He wants to see a living, breathing, flesh and blood Jesus. And how does Christ respond? Does he scold Thomas for his unsophisticated obsession with physical matter? Is Thomas mocked for not understanding the symbolism of the resurrection? 
for not understanding that the experience of Christ is just a very solemn remembering of what he did for us in our minds and hearts? Or does he show up in the flesh and offer another shalom alechem and then displays for Thomas's appraisal his actual resurrected body? To which Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. Echoing what faithful Job said so long before, in my flesh I shall see God. I know I'm getting close to the end of time, but there's one other thing I wanted to mention. It hasn't been too long since Father Ben Williams and his wife Janie (coughs) worshipped and served alongside us here at Christ the King. They and their five precious children now live about 200 miles north and west of us in Jackson, Tennessee, where Father Ben is currently doing one of the hardest things you can do in this world, which is to plant a church. So pray for him. They are planting Mission St. James, Mission St. James out of All Saints Anglican in Jackson, Tennessee. Now, as a priest, I have the holy privilege of seeing people in their most intimate moments of devotion and worship. I have Janie's permission to share this with you. Her practice when receiving Holy Communion, right hand on top of left, whenever I would place the consecrated bread, the body of Christ, into her hand, I would hear her whisper, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. Us clergy try to show y'all the way, but so often y'all are the ones showing us the way. Her practice and the faith it demonstrated connected so many important points of Scripture and theology in my mind, not least of which is that as we read at the end of the Emmaus Road passage in Luke 24, he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Christ still presents us with his body and blood at every Eucharist. The Lord Jesus still corrects our latent Gnosticism not by scolding us for desiring his real presence, but by bringing transfigured matter into our midst. He still says, peace be with you, and then offers to our unworthy hands the means of that peace. The Lord's Supper nourishes our living hope, in which, though not seeing the exact same way that Thomas saw, we are invited to believe And be blessed for holding the faith that is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. As John says, he wrote these words that we might believe Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, we might have life in his name. Our hope is alive because our faith is in the living one. Who died and yet lives forevermore. Who has won for us an inheritance that is, listen to this, imperishable. It's undefiled. We might perish. We might be surrounded with defilement. It's undefiled. It's unfading, though the world is passing away. Don't be deceived. It's unfading. Nothing has happened to it. It's still there. He won for us a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, such that even though we have not seen him, we love him, we believe in him, we rejoice in him, knowing that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Hallelujah. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Amen.